So we're reading from Judges chapter 3. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel, getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him. Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gerah the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us, and they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong, and not one escaped. That day Moab was made subject to Israel and the land had peace for 80 years. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. 
Well, we're beginning a series on Judges, which I'm very excited about. Judges is, uh, you know, you have your favourite books in the Bible, and this is one of mine. Uh, it's fav- favourite because it's just full of action and, you know, fun and um, toilet humour and, you know, all the, all the things that makes for a, an exciting story. And I always, I've often thought that there's a missed opportunity in Hollywood to make a kind of a, you know, um, a full-on film series, you know, based on the book of the judges, because it's all there for you, it's handed to you on a plate, you know, all all the funny characters and exciting adventures and war and violence and sex and everything for for a big Hollywood movie to be successful. Anyway, maybe Quentin Tarantino will get onto it one day. So... What we're going to do as we go through this series is um, I want to begin today with with, this, with these two characters. I'm focusing mainly on Ehud, but also give you some background. And um, what I hope is that as we read through this book of Judges, which is filled with all kinds of peculiar th- events, that you can see how actually it is Christian literature. What we're reading here is Christian literature. It's not... It is originally Jewish scriptures, but it's not just, we're not to think of it as eccentric, weird stories from the olden days that, that are a bit embarrassing for us, but that they're there for us to learn, uh, to know about what God thinks and who God is and who we are before God and what God has done um, in history. So let me give you a bit of introduction uh, to some context. Now, we should see ourselves in the timeline of the Bible here. So you probably know what what has happened before, but I'll just remind you. So um, let's go back to the time of Moses. So God's people have been in Egypt for about 400 years, sort of uh, the Hebrew people. And then over time, they've eventually um, found themselves in a situation where they're oppressed by the Pharaoh. And so they cry out to God saying, we don't want to be slaves anymore. God sends Moses. And Moses uh, comes in the power of God and there's a series of plagues and Pharaoh resists and then eventually um, God uses Moses to free the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea happens and they cross over and, and then they go towards the promised land. But even though after God's powerful display of power and grace and salvation of these people, the Israelites had trouble trusting in him and believing in him. So the journey um, to the promised land took a, a lot longer and took about 40 years through the desert. And Moses died even before they got there. And it was Moses' assistant, Joshua, who would lead them to the promised land. He taught them to be faithful to the commands of the Torah so that they could show the nations who God is like. And the book of Judges begins in the first verse of the first chapter with the death of Joshua. And it enters into an account, a story of how the 12 tribes of Israel completely failed at doing what Joshua had taught them to do and doing what Moses had taught them to do. They did not live out the commands and they did not obey God. They became, in fact, the opposite. They became a decadent, violent, immoral, corrupt society. They had leadership. Each tribe was led by what's called a judge, and we're not to think of judges in Judge Judy or, you know, a judge in a courtroom, but they think of them like a leader. Maybe you're like a political or a military leader, like a tribal leader, chief of a tribe. And their names were Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Barak, Gideon, Tola, Jair, Jephthah, Ibzan, Elon, Abdon, and Samson. And that should be a test in a Bible trivia quiz, isn't it? Name them all. And there's also um, 
Deborah and Jael who play an important role, and Deborah is also called a judge of Israel. And Othniel, the first judge that we encounter in today's passage, is a model judge. He starts off on a good note, and his career does exemplify what a judge probably should have looked like, was meant to look like. But the judges who come after Othniel, it descends into the toilet, literally. Um, it goes down the gurgler, and culminating in Samson, who's just a complete nutter, you know. His behaviour is so bizarre that he barely, you, could, you can hardly tell that he's a judge. And the pattern of the book, there's a pattern there that you should look out for. And we've, got, we've had it today in our passage. And the pattern goes like this. It's a cycle that keeps repeating. It starts as unbelief, the Israelites' unbelief or apostasy. Then their kind of oppression or judgment by God. And then they call out to Yahweh, please help us. Then Yahweh delivers them and saves them. And then there's peace for a time. And then it starts again, renewed apostasy, renewed unbelief. And the cycle keeps going down and down and down. And the book repeats these themes. The Israelites descend into disunity. And by the time of Samson, the Israelites no longer even cry out to Yahweh to save them. And if you trace the big story of the Israelites from Genesis, Exodus, all the way to the Judges, something you will notice is that while they'd got to the promised land, they're finally there, they didn't really fully occupy the land that God had promised them all along to have. And this is a bit weird because if you're reading through the story, you're expecting this to occur. There, they've got there to the promised land, so why aren't they fully occupying it? This was the land that God had sworn to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They're finally there. Why aren't they fully occupying the promised land? So the book of Judges asks this big question. Why didn't Israel ever fully possess the land that God promised to their ancestors? And the answer to the question is because after the death of Joshua, they gradually abandoned their faith in God and continued in their terrible ways in spite of all of God's efforts to bring them back to faith in him. They didn't completely abandon it, but they may as well have. I mean, they were just so terrible in their disbelief and their apostasy. So that brings us to Othniel. So let's have a look at Othniel. There's some context. And you look out for that cycle, that question that's being asked in that cycle. And let's begin with Othniel. In verse 7, it says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, they forgot the Lord their God, they forgot about him, and they served the Baals and the Asherahs, which were idols. So they're already, you know, abandoning their faith in God. And so what happens? So here's the, the judgment from God. The anger of the Lord burned against them. So God sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for 80 years. Now, nobody really knows who this character is, but it's a kind of a phrase that um, says, Cushan of double wickedness. That's how we're to think of him. And that's probably how the Israelites saw him. He was a real terrible bloke. He was a tyrant. The 20th century had Mussolini, Stalin, Hitler, Franco, Pol Pot, Slobodan Milosevic in my time. In the time of the judges, they had Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, Naharaim. So the cycle continues in verse 9. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother who saved them. The spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan 
Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. So Othniel was Israel's first saviour judge. He was raised up by Yahweh, who uses him to save the Israelites, who enjoy the salvation. He is one for them until he dies, until Othniel dies. Yahweh's spirit was with him. God meets Israel's cry with an immediate response. His anger is soothed and he becomes committed and active on Israel's behalf. He raised up a saviour and saved them. And there's a kind of a pattern we're seeing already in the book of Judges, an institution that God has that Israel should really stick to if they have their wits about them for the sake of their own survival, which is that they should be ruled by divinely called and empowered saviour judges. It would be a good idea for them to stick to that plan. Othniel is a supernaturally empowered judge. He's a charismatic leader in the true sense of the word, not because he's got good humour and, you know, good-looking and tall. Not charismatic in that sense. Charismatic because he's empowered by the Spirit of God. So we have Othniel. Now let's move to Ehud. Then in verse 12, the cycle starts again. The story involves a lot more twists this time. And what we see in Ehud is the beginning of kind of what the rest of the judges are going to more look like. A lot more trickery. It's kind of a plot we're going to see emerge that you might see in like one of those Danish murder mysteries that you see on Netflix, you know. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and as punishment he handed them over to Eglon, king of Moab. Eglon joined with the Ammonites and the Amalekites and ransacked Israel, taking over the city of Palms, which is another name for Jericho. And their oppression under Eglon lasted 18 years. So there's the cycle. They did evil. Then they're oppressed, which is a kind of form of judgment from God. So the Israelites cried out to the Lord. And again, he raised up a deliverer, a saviour figure, a little bit like Othniel. This deliverer was called Ehud. And he was a left-handed man and the son of Gerah, the Benjamite. Hands up who's left-handed. Okay, that's about the right percentage. They make up about 5 to 10% of the population, left-handed people. Apparently, they're more likely to become alcoholics, is something that the... Um, they use the right side of their brain the most. They reach puberty four to five months after the right-handed people, apparently. But they make excellent tennis players. So 40% of elite tennis players are actually left-handed. So they're disproportionately represented... So some people just had a bit of a laugh then, but let's just have a look at the other things. Four of the last seven presidents of America were left-handed. Of those who graduate university, they are 25 to 26% more wealthy than right-handed equivalents. And mothers who are over 40 at the, age, at the time of giving birth are 128% more likely to have a left-handed child, apparently, than a woman in her 20s, that is. And here's a, here's a good one. The Queen Mother, Queen Elizabeth II, Prince Charles and Prince William are all left-handed, but also were the Boston Strangler, Osama Bin Laden and Jack the Ripper. So, <laughs> so the expression of left-handed man about Ehud is significant. It's important because it's a clue about how the story will unfold. It's like when in a movie, sometimes, um, you know, what Alfred Hitchcock was famous for doing at the start of the movie is the camera would pan 
and then focus in on the, you know, the, the sword on the side of the wall or the gun or, or the rope, you know, or, or whatever it is. And you'd know at the very start of the film, if that's where the camera's pointing, then at the end of the film or somewhere along in the film, that was going to be used as the murder weapon. And that's what's happening. He's a left-handed man. So let's compare and contrast Othniel and Ehud for a moment. Othniel was your normal kind of heroic leader. In other words, he was a warrior from a family of faithful men in the tribe of Judah who were chosen by God to be the first to go up into their inheritance. But Ehud is more of an unlikely leader, more of an unlikely hero. He was left-handed in a culture which wasn't too kind to left-handed people. People might have thought of him even as a bit handicapped being left-handed and having no chance against Eglon. Yet he is God's choice. And this is God's way to use surprising leaders. One day he would use a shepherd boy to kill a giant. One day he would use a, a carpenter's boy from the hick town of Nazareth to save the whole world. So God's activity and plans here are a bit strange already. They're a bit secretive, a bit deceptive. What's he doing with this left-handed bloke? Not only is his left hand a clue, but so is the short double-edged sword strapped to his right thigh a clue. Here's the murder weapon. So Ehud goes up to Eglon to present a tribute. It is a gift, and this is not that unusual to do that, an offering to the king. But this is a tactic to get close to him. Now, it says Eglon is a fat man, and again, that reads funny to us. may not have meant to be funny for the original readers, because maybe it was common for kings, because they had so much wealth to be large and rotund. But um, it's actually going to be significant as the plot unfolds. So Ehud gave the tribe to Eglon and sent away, the, the tribute, sorry, to Eglon, and sent away those who helped him carry it. And then said to the king, your majesty, I have a secret message for you. And the king said to his attendants, leave us please. And they all left. Ehud now has Eglon alone and vulnerable. He wants him to stand up so that he can really get a, a good target for his dagger. You know, right in there. And Ehud says he has a message from God. So Eglon does stand up to receive this message. This is exciting. And in doing so, it's almost like, you know, dramatic. He's, he's presenting himself as like a, a, an animal to be slaughtered. And look at verse 21. Now, you see the text, it just unfolds really snappy. Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. <sighs> then the servants came back to the king and saw that the doors were shut and assumed he was on the toilet. Eglon had a, a cool closet attached to his private meeting room. So the servants, smelling the smell, the, you know, the, the discharge thinks that he's on the toilet relieving himself and they're standing there going, stinker, you know, he's, what's he been eating, you know, it's gross. And some scholars think that 
the way things are described here, where maybe we're thinking that Eglin actually was sitting on the toilet when all of this happened, based on their expectation of the servants. It doesn't actually say that, but it, there's enough clues there to think that that's probably what was going on there. So they sat around waiting for him to get off the toilet so long that they're looking at themselves, rolling their eyes in embarrassment, probably thinking he's reading the newspaper on the toilet or something or playing games on his iPhone, you know. Eventually they let themselves in and saw him dead on the floor. Well, Ehud ran out and blew a trumpet to sound the alarm to the Israelites. And Ehud shouted, follow me, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. And this is a bit of a strange story, comparing it to Othniel, isn't it? Already this is going weird. This unexpected leader now had defeated the evil tyrant by stabbing him in the belly. And he was leading the Israelites to defeat their enemies. And they had peace for 80 years. And then we find out this other extra bit of information in verse 31, that God sent yet another saviour, Shamgar, son of Anath, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. How embarrassing for the Philistines. This one bloke, this kind of Rambo character, killed 600 of them with an ox goad, which is a wooden tool, about eight feet long, has an iron spike at one end, which was used to prod the oxen as they pulled a plough or a cart, and also had an iron scraper to get the mud off from the ploughshare. And why is this extra little line in there at the end? Because it's reinforcing the idea that we've already learned from Ehud that while God does send saviours to rescue Israel from its enemies, you could never predict the kind of saviour he's going to send. They won't look like anything you could imagine. I just saw the Avengers Endgame last night. That's the way we imagine heroes to be, you know, superpowers and stuff. And uh, macho and um, grand and all this. This is eccentric, what we're seeing here. You know, using farm tools and, you know, killing people in the toilet. They, they're not going to look like anything you, you can imagine. Ehud is, is unusual. He's left-handed in more ways than one. It's, it's almost like God is using particularly strange ways to achieve his goals. He doesn't follow any kind of formula that you could expect. And this is the main theological point of this passage that I want to draw out. Othniel, we see that after him is a descending trajectory where uh, God uses these unexpected ways to save his people. For each of these judges, as time goes on, they will take more and more responsibility on their shoulders and just do things on their own until by the time you, you get to Samson, he's just literally defeating his enemies on his own. In the New Testament, the letter to the Hebrews lists the judges in a very important way as great examples of faith and people of faith. Hebrews 11, 32 to 33 says... And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon. So these are a few of the judges that come a bit later. We're going to look at these. We don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, uh, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised. See, in the letter to the Hebrews, the judges 
they're not rejected as examples of weird faith, but actually they're praised as great examples of faith. And they're put alongside other worthy characters like Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Moses. So the, the, the writer to the Hebrews sees these stories in Judges as holy scripture and a rich source for understanding the person and work of Christ even and for instruction in the Christian faith. This is not just weird eccentric stories that belongs to a barbaric age where the idea of an assassin doing the Lord's work by killing a fat man on the toilet is some kind of embarrassing ancient story. That's that's not how the writer to the Hebrews sees all of this. We're not allowed to judge the judges, as uh, the Australian scholar Barry Webb argues. Don't judge the judges. Quite the opposite. In fact, the letter to the Hebrews locates these people, these judges, these quirky judges, amongst the great cloud of witnesses. In fact, the letter to the Hebrews goes even further and says that the judges were leaders of Israel who through faith conquered kingdoms. They're not negative examples of faith. They're positive examples of faith with Abraham, Moses and David, albeit very unexpected. What does this mean for you and me? It's uh, good for us to remember that God uses very strange, unexpected methods. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 26 to 27. Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things. God's preference seems to use strange people, weirdos like me, unexpected people, Unusual people, people on the margins of society, people like you, maybe even, to do his work. People with smelly breath, people who have awkward conversation, people who just don't know how to keep a thread in their thought, Um, people who um, dress strangely. God uses the unexpected people to do his work. He does this by his grace So that we don't think that it's our strength that God achieves things, but it's God's strength. I often find missionaries a bit weird sometimes. I don't know if you've met many missionaries. Hopefully there's no missionaries. Oh, hopefully there are missionaries here, actually. But uh, (laughs) but often they're a little bit eccentric. But but they're the ones that often God chooses to go out and to um, reach um, the hardest parts of the world with the gospel. God uses weirdos and eccentrics to do his work so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, says Paul. So there are two possible wrong thoughts you can correct about yourself using the story of Ehud, Othniel and Ehud. Two wrong thoughts. The first wrong thought is that you are so talented and amazing that God should really be using you in this church. This is the thought that at work you're so successful, you've got a high-ranking job and you're paid so well, and you come to church and you sit there going, oh, these guys just don't know what they're doing. If only I was the one running the show here, or I was the one leading whatever, then, you know, then everything would just turn around because, you know, I'm just so amazing. The church just doesn't realise how great your leadership would be. Now, of course, you don't lead because you don't have time, but if you did have time, oh, wow, you know. The story of Ehud shows you how wrong you are 
God can and does use whoever he wants, whomever he wants, whoever, including unexpected people. You need to humble yourself before God and realise this, that you're not such a big person in your big boots. Take a lowly seat. Perhaps God will use you in the way you think he should. Perhaps you won't. I, I remember when I, uh, years ago when um, Peter Costello was the treasurer of Australia. And um, a, ni- a nice story that, you know, at his church that he went to, St Columns in Hawthorne, he helped out with the communion and giving the communion and he helped out, you know, at the welcoming at the, at the door and stuff and didn't take on a kind of, you know, any sort of leadership in the church or as such. He didn't throw his weight around, didn't try and push himself around. And for me, I thought that was quite an encouraging thing back then as a young bloke. I was like, wow, a guy with a lot of political power, you'd think in a church everyone might, might bow down to him and everything, but he's just serving quietly um, without making a big scene. This is what we need to do. You know, if you've got tickets on yourself, just humble yourself. But there's another kind of wrong thought you could have, which is that you think you have nothing to offer and that God would never choose you. You think you're not as smart as others, that you're awkward, that you're introverted, you don't know what to say when you're around people, that you're not funny and witty, that people don't invite you to their house for parties and that you're just a bit small and insignificant. That's the way you think of yourself. You think of yourself as more of a sinner than everyone else, perhaps. And that you don't know your Bible as well as you wished you did. The story of Ehud shows us that actually God chooses people just like you, left-handed people in inverted commas, to lead his people, to to be saviours for his people even. Perhaps he's preparing you right now to do something extraordinary. So be open to God's leading. Don't be afraid to take a step of faith. God doesn't want your strength and professionalism. What he wants is your faithfulness. Left-handed people he wants. Left-handed characters, like the judge of all judges, Jesus Christ. Because when he came, he had nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He achieved his victory all alone on behalf of his people, but not helped in any way by them. And he crushed his people's enemies through his own weakness, just like Ehud. All of the judges from Ehud onward strangely point us to Christ. But he's also different from them as well. He didn't use deception like Ehud. Uh, He didn't need assistance like the judges, Deborah and Barak. He didn't display selfish ambition like Gideon. He wasn't impulsive like the judge, Jephthah. He wasn't weak to sexual temptation like Samson was. And yet he is similar to them because he's God's anointed, unexpected saviour. He's weak in the world's eyes. He started life in a manger. He comes in triumph on a a donkey. He has no need of armies. The world looks at him and thinks, this guy is not going to do anything. They will see foolishness where there is divine wisdom. They will see weakness where there is cosmic power. They will feel threatened where there is perfect love. We should not make the mistake that Eglon made when he looked down at Ehud. 
a God's chosen deliverer and esteemed him not, seeing this left-handed bloke, what's he doing here? We should look at Christ and we should see the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for you being a left-handed God and choosing left-handed people. And we thank you um, for this, these first stories from Judges 3 that um, will be encouraged by who you are. And we pray for those of us here who do feel perhaps insignificant or not useful, that um, you can prepare their hearts because you, we know that you want people who are unexpected to serve you. Amen.